a cricketing view an irregular podcast about cricket and other things episode 4 my guest today is gary nailer gary is a reviewer of the performing arts cricket and football in today's conversation we spoke about the art of reviewing and criticism welcome gary well i'm delighted to be here number 4 on the list i feel like i'm at the start of a big story Well, well, we'll see how big the story gets. This is sort of <laughs> this is if I if I find something to talk about and someone who is prepared to talk to me about it, then an episode happens. This is the this is we're the on, working theory of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're on the road to an epic. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, welcome. I I want to talk to you because I've read your work obviously on cricket for a while. I used to read ninety nine point nine four. and i read your in, and then it moved to the guardian and i continue to read it there i've read some of your work on covering the theater i find that you know there aren't many people who will cover both the theater and films and opera and the performing arts broadly as well as sport i think there used to be in an earlier generation but that seems to have been that seems to have declined Is that am I right or am I? Well, I I I think so. Um, if I can sort of puff up my chest and uh, twirl my mustache and say um, the great Neville Cardus, of course, uh, he uh, he covered um, theatre, uh, opera, and stuff like that as as well as cricket. And of course, I am not comparing myself to the doyen of uh, of cricket writers. And there are there are others. Uh, I think Michael Henderson always has an interest in. in opera and and cricket and there are other cricket writers who perhaps um see the uh, the attractions of of cricket in its its long and engrossing format particularly test cricket and first class cricket and and theater um narrative arcs uh, the role of character and and so on but perhaps are not fortunate enough uh, as i am uh, particularly with with online which does offer of course far more opportunities and I might come back to that later um that they that they have the opportunity to write on on both those uh, broad areas and um, but I think there is a, a a kind of overlap uh in terms of of what excites a, a person and what engages a person uh between cricket and and theater and you know I, i many friends of mine who are cricket followers also uh attend the theater on a fairly regular basis so on the one hand it does look they do look like disparate subjects uh, but on the other hand i feel that the um that the the way that they engage you and indeed when you come to write about both of these uh, fields there's there's so much overlap that uh, that you don't really need to put your head in a different place funnily enough um one of the things that you one of the things that you do need to put your head in a slightly different place is when writing reviews of films and books which are, are, are you would think would be quite similar to writing reviews of plays but but it's turned out to me at least anyway that they that they are quite different but maybe we'll come to that later on how did you get involved with writing reviews have you always done that like since school or is it a recent thing um in in some ways i have not exactly in in terms of writing them um but uh certainly talking about it you refer to school when i was at 
at school, my mother worked in a cinema. She used to uh, give out the drinks in the intervals and the ice creams and all of that kind of stuff. Okay. Like she was in a kind of being played by Mia Farrow in a Woody Allen film in the in the nineteen seventies or something. Um, but she so um, because she handed out the tickets, she got a, a couple of comps as they're called, complimentary yeah. tickets a week, which turned out to actually be a bit more than a, a couple. So what we were able to do, uh, both my brothers and I, was uh, spend quite a lot of our our childhood in in cinemas. And um, it was a small cinema in, in Liverpool. And in about 1974 or so, when I was 11, they split it into three. And in those days, um, a night at the cinema really was a night at the cinema. You arrived about 6.50, 7 o'clock or something, and you saw a B-movie, a support movie, and then you saw the main feature, which would begin at around quarter to nine uh, after the interval, and it would go on to about uh, quarter past ten or something like that. So mm. you, you saw, and I saw a lot of movies, and um, I, I'll give you an example. I think I, I was there one evening, and um, I was there for one of these uh, Richard Pryor and... Uh, Gene Wilder um, kind of buddy movies that they made in the 70s, yeah. Silver Streak or something like that. But the support movie was Richard Pryor live at Sunset Strip. And I didn't know who Richard Pryor was. And I just went in sort of cold about to quarter to seven or something in the in the evening. There's only a handful of people in the cinema. And I've got Richard Pryor doing this Pryor on Fire stand-up routine. I'm about 14. And they go, bloody hell, what is this? Um, so you've got You've got real um, surprises like that, particularly with the the B movies. But what that what that gave, I think, and and it's noticeable with both my brothers who uh, go to theatre quite often themselves now. And I mean, they see more bands and go to theatres than than I do. But and they also um, see a lot of movies. Is that at a quite a young age we we learn the ability to concentrate for long periods of time so mm. it's never been a, a a problem you know long three and a half hour subtitled movies by andrei tarkovsky or something like that are never a problem for me because i feel as though i was sort of acculturated to this approach of of sitting in a darkened room and and concentrating on the matter at hand for hours on end at a very early age and I'm I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity. So I was in cinemas from a from a very early age and then a bit later on as I, as I uh, particularly when I, I went to London and went to college uh, lived in a student house for a year and we would spend hours and hours and hours talking about movies talking about television programs I mean that was what we we did uh, to a, a large for a large part of our time so you know we'd be in the in the kitchen and we'd get back from the union having had a few drinks or something at midnight and you'd be making something to eat frying something up or something and somebody would walk in and then we we'd just start talking about sort of favorite sitcoms or something and before you knew it it was 3 30 in the morning and you yeah. opened another bottle of wine and so i i'd always had that in me talking about uh film and television at theater to some to some extent um and so it's always been sort of in my blood to to when you you finish watching something to roll it over in your mind and talk about it further with anyone else who's who's seen it and then i think the final part of the kind of foundation if you like of of how i became a reviewer um before i actually 
wrote my first review was that I've always been a bit of a, uh, a journalism junkie, and for a long time, I I had on subscription lots and lots of magazines. I'm talking uh, the Cricketer, I'm talking Private Eye, I'm talking yeah. the Atlantic, I'm talking Pro Cycling, Cycling Monthly, um, When Saturday Comes. Uh, at times, I've been a subscriber to the Economist. Um, uh, the London Review of Books, oh, just loads and loads and loads of magazines. Because I, I've always been someone who reads journalism. My my rule I had for a while, and um, if you want to send yourself mad, have a rule like this: was that when I was reading the 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 old Guardian in the eighties, the old broadsheet Guardian in the eighties, if there was a headline I was interested in, then I would read the article, and if it was a headline that I wasn't interested in. I needed to know a bit more about it, so I had to read the article. So you know, that gets you into reading newspapers cover to cover every day, which obviously they were not designed to do, nor is it a way to stop yourself going mad. Um, but the big influence on, on reviewing was reading The New Yorker. And if yeah. anyone is listening to this and, and has any aspirations to writing in, in any capacity, anywhere, online or elsewhere, even just writing your own diary or for your own pleasure then reading the new yorker is just about the best grounding you can get the variety of subject matter the quality of the writing the uh use of of language uh exposition carrying argument all of that i think the new yorker is the best at all of those things and obviously its art section is particularly is a particularly important part of the magazine i i started reading the new yorker after I went to graduate school. And I, I'm always struck by how expertly composed everything in it is, whether it's you know thousands of words or whether it's a 500 word short observation about a specific short event. One thing that strikes me, given that we're talking in 2019, is that your, your formative experiences were all in print. And your habits of reading and habits of observing developed in an era before the internet. Yes. Uh, does that is is that do you find that to be significant in the way you approach uh, reviewing? Um, whether whether it's whether it's reviewing uh, you know the fourth day of a test match or you know a, a school. You I, I know that you you review. Uh, school productions as well as professional yeah. production. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's an accident of of age, really, as yeah. much as anything else. I mean, I'm I'm 56, so until I was in my mid 40s, the internet wasn't really a, a, a player. Um, but quite early on, because I had a computer on my desk and I was working in a university in a in a media school in a university, um, it was not a a kind of cheat, if you like, uh, for us to be looking at the internet and monitoring news websites and reading stuff because it was in the early 90s it was literally developing every day so we had to stay abreast of that so i probably spent more time at work legitimately reading newspapers online and stuff like that than than most other people quite early on um i i began to think about the difference between online writing and um print form writing and uh, you know i've i've written some 
pieces a few years ago at 99.94 about different ways of of accessing cricket media and Mm -hmm. a big game changer for me uh, as I'm sure you know was the Guardian's over by over coverage which allowed uh, us to follow the progress of test matches in particular but ODIs as well um, on our computers with an over by over update from the likes of of Rob Smythe and Lawrence Booth and Andy Bull uh, originally, and then later it spread to football, and you've got the likes of Scott Murray doing it at football. And, you know, Rob is, I'm I'm proud to say Rob is a friend, and we've had lots of kind of conversations about the differences of online writing and print writing and and just what makes the online experience uh, different. And I think Rob is the the master of, of... being able to write immediate, with the immediacy you need for that kind of online writing um, and be able to uh, capture an event as it's happening. He's also masterful in the form of, of, of the longer form of online writing where he brings in links, he brings in references, um, he uses, he very much is aware of the fact that a person is reading this they are reading it on a screen um and that they can yeah. they can link out at any time um there was i think back in the in the early days of guardian unlimited there was a, a thing that did the round saying you know write it unless you can link it in which case link it and you know steve busfield who was at wired and was at the guardian for a while as well he's very good on on the differences between kind of online writing and print form writing. Um, I think to some extent with the advent of, uh, and the kind of ubiquity of, of broadband and of handheld devices and people reading stuff on their phones and the bus stops and they, they simply sort of click their phone to their home screen and then get off the bus and then maybe pick up the article again, again when they get home or something. I think some of that has, the, the differences have gone. But I, mm. I do think that with online writing, there is a, there is a greater immediacy. Maybe, maybe it's just an, a, a, a kind of illusion, but because people are looking at a bright screen uh, rather than a passive page, uh, because there's often adverts that are around it, or there's, there's, there are distractions as well on a screen which you don't get on a on a printed page. Then right. um, I think there is a, a a kind of obligation on the online writer to be crisper, to be sharper, and I think in some ways to be more, even more subjective, even more kind of forceful. Um, if you're saying something online, say it. You know, don't don't um, shilly shally. Uh, yeah. But the other side of that coin is, of course, all the poison and all the partisanship. You have to, well, you have to decide, are you going to be part of that? In which case, yeah. you know, a kind of Piers Morgan type character. Or are you going to step aside and are you going to say, look, you know, I'm putting my work there. These are my thoughts. Um, you you certainly at liberty to comment on them if you wish, because, you know, screens are always interactive or should always be interactive. Um, but if you don't like it, then then fine. But this is this is me. Fascinating that you bring that up because this notion of live writing and sort of having to think on your feet, you know, we we associate that with interviewers, uh, you know, uh, and debaters. 
but it has it, it i think it has sort of acquired a role in the over by over coverage or the minute by minute coverage in the football or you know even in the ball by ball coverage like what click info and a few other sites have you know which i mean i i was reading a couple of your reviews and in one of your reviews you have this you have this line which i really enjoyed so i'm going to read it out okay you say, thank you you say in any, any opera asks us questions about where to direct our gaze what to listen to and what to merely hear how to interpret music movement and libretto's creation of meaning what to sift from the sensory overload for processing as the show speeds on and it seemed to me that that is applicable to a lot of reviewing and especially today where a lot of reviewing is either live or quasi live because of you know how 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 everything gets shrunk and people move on to the next thing so fast you know yeah yeah i mean i i think you're right and and thank you for the kind words about uh, about that of course inevitably i'd forgotten that i'd written that because you write it so quickly and you know it's it's gone um but i, I you know i i think it's important i i suspect I wrote that after I had interviewed a, a German woman called Julia Burbach, and she is a director, uh, a young up-and-coming director who has done some work at the Royal Opera House, and we we talked about the different elements of opera and how they come together, and I was talking about the kind of subjective experience of, of how that's all processed in the audience. And, of course, lurking in my background, I've got, sort of little bits of kind of French theory of, of you know, the death of the author and Roland Barthes right. and, and some of that stuff. But a lot of that is forgotten. But every now and again, it kind of pops into my mind. And so, um, I you know, I my writing is not academic, but it is informed a little bit by that previous life I had as a, yeah. as an academic. And, you know, I think that it, it amuses me and it, it, I think it helps me make points. So I hope that the, the reader gets it as well. But um, I think it's particularly, I think, yes, I think you're absolutely right. You have to decide um, what you're looking at, whether you're in the, the stalls at Royal Opera House and there's a chorus of, 50 or 60 serfs on on stage for Boris Godunov and you've got Bryn Terfel singing in front and you've got some kind of uh, element of caprice going on in the corner between the between two would-be lovers all at the same time and you're looking at the surtitles because they're singing in Italian or something and you know some of that's similar to when you're at uh, at Lords and in the media centre and you're looking out and you've got the pavilion in front of you, you've got the action in the middle, but you've got sort of half an eye on what the crowd are doing and a piece of fielding over there and all oh, they moved a, an extra slip in and in one sense this is a this is a challenge, but in another sense it's very it's very satisfactory because if you have eyes to see, you've got all of this stuff going on, but then your challenge as a reviewer is and you have to do the things you have to do these things either immediately the extraordinary way that the best of the minute by minute writers and the over by over writers and it's not just at the guardian of course lots of of um outlets have uh, and platforms have adopted this now the way the best of them capture a narrative and, and capture the atmosphere and all that stuff going on as a reviewer you've got to move quite quickly and you've got to make some decisions about what you're going to watch and then how you're going to bring that to the um, 
to the readers uh, often no more than 12 hours, maybe 16 hours uh, later, because these reviews have to be written quite quickly. And if you're not already formulating your thoughts, if you're not already deciding what the themes are, what the uh, important elements of the production um, in an opera or even in a in more of a straight play, uh, what you're going to focus on, then um, you're going to end up with a pretty wishy-washy. You're going to end up with a with a, a rambling review, and nobody wants to read that. They want to read reviews that say, you know, this is what the play is about. This is what's good about it. This is what's not so good. And here's why you should think about investing fifteen quid going to see it. I presume that when you're reviewing plays or the opera or something, you're writing for an audience and your readers, the presumption is that the readers have not yet seen the play. Right? Yes. Whereas when you're covering a test match or you know the World Cup semi-final or whatever it is, then you're writing essentially for readers who have watched the game. Right? I would I would say not always. Mm. Um, you're absolutely right in that your your review. Your review of a, a theatre piece, it's a press night, it's early in the run, and um, yeah. the whole idea of it is that you know readers read it, uh, and the reason that you get press tickets is because it's a way of, of getting that play or that production into the public domain, and people will read that and think, oh, I quite fancy that, and, and go along and, and see it. So it's very much on your mind as a reviewer that the reader has not seen the uh, the production. When you're writing about a, a cricket match, when you, I'm doing either my kind of final over of the, the day or I'm writing a, a more of a straight report, I, I have the view that, that I probably think at least half of my readers will not have seen the, uh, the, the day's play, certainly not all of it. Um, and you know maybe that's me being old-fashioned again because um, having grown up in a day where you know the paper would drop through the letterbox, you would you would pick up the paper and you would read about what happened at the test match the day before, um, or even online when I'm reading the likes of Paul Edwards in in mm-hmm. Crick Info when he's writing a county report from Worcester, and you know he's waxing lyrical, he's bringing in poetic allusions and he's bringing in the history. Mm-hmm. Um, he. The readers won't have been at Worcester and won't have, in the main, been watching the the single fixed camera stream that the BBC use. Yeah. So I think I think um, I think most of the time, even when I'm writing about cricket, my my presumption is that my putative reader is someone who has not seen all of the day's play that I've been privileged to see still has an informed knowledge so for instance i'll give you an example a long long time ago i wrote a, a piece about vvs latchman and i said you know my favorite player and in writing that i was trying to capture his extraordinary capacity to uh watch the ball all the way onto the bat and then at the very last minute just break the wrists one way or break the wrists the other way and and yeah. and so on and and that sort of beautiful fragility he had in his game which led to that uh, that uh, beautiful balance and everything else. Now, my assumption is that people reading that will have seen VVS Latchman bat, but perhaps they haven't looked at him quite as closely as I had done over the previous 12 months, or perhaps they haven't seen some of the 
um, comparisons that I was bringing in, comparing him to to other batsmen, maybe comparing him to Sachin or to or to Dravid or, or his other contemporary Sewag or someone. But um, but so you 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 kind of have an idea about the reader, and you kind of have an idea that they know that they are informed, but definitely haven't got as much knowledge as you have as the writer because that's your privilege as the writer but the great thing about online is that they're going to come back to you either through twitter and social media or perhaps in comment sections as they often do and say but hey had you thought of this or what about this comparison and so on and some of the friendships and some of the uh best stuff that i've read uh online i've been struck up by readers coming back to me and saying yes but there are other things and there's this or there's that and then they really add to the piece and it becomes a living and breathing thing you know we're very lucky those of us with platforms you know you've got crick info i have 99.94 and the guardian and broadway world for my theater writing we're very privileged to have those platforms but that doesn't mean to say we have a a kind of monopoly of of knowledge or insight and so when readers come back and contact you it's uh, i think it's a real pleasure of course i might be thinking otherwise if i were a football writer because that's much more tribal and you get horrible stuff coming back at you but with cricket certainly i've been fortunate in my cricket writing and in my theater writing is that for every snarky uh, put down i've had i've had a thousand more um uh, constructive and uh, I won't say complimentary because that sounds a bit condescending, but constructive and uh, positive contributions from readers, and I'm, I'm delighted to keep receiving them now. Would you say reviewing is a constructive enterprise, or is it is it a form of scrutiny? I I think I've thought quite a bit about this because I think there's an element of it being parasitic. We can't review something that the creatives haven't sweated blood over for years and years and years. And this is something that I, I feel uh, very strongly all the time. Um, maybe you can call it a certain humility if you want to, but I'm always aware when the lights go down in the, in the theater that the, that what I am seeing is the product of years and years and years of work from the training, from the selection to get into drama school, from the uh, writing and all that went into that, uh, for the directing, the rehearsals, everything else. And so you, you give it that respect. And so I hardly ever write wholly negative reviews. I hardly ever see anything that warrants it. I have seen one or two pieces that warrant it. You, you have to give that that respect um, that nobody goes out to make a, a bad piece of theatre. Nobody goes out to hit their first ball in the air to extra cover and walk back to the pavilion. But sometimes yeah. things don't work. You know, sometimes, you, and you have to be true to your reader, you have to call it as you see it. Um, but so, and the first, in, a, in one sense, it's parasitic, but in the other sense, um, as, a, as a reviewer, you are the bridge um, both to the public at large who may choose to you know read your words and then decide whether to go and see that particular production of three sisters or whatever it might be that you're reviewing um so you 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 owe them the the dignity of your honesty and so 
you do see websites where almost everything gets four and five stars, but there are lots of links where you can buy tickets and the website gets a cut of the uh, of the ticket uh, price going through that particular uh, portal. Um, fortunately, the the website I uh, and the editor that I work with has never never lent on us in any sense uh, with with our with our reviewing. We are entirely. Um, it's entirely our own decision how we review shows and what ratings we give and everything else. So I think that kind of editorial distance is great for us uh, reviewers. Um, but yeah, I think we, we add to it in that sense, but I think we're also a bridge back to the, the production team and the cast because something which is very different about theater reviewing, if we compare it to um, film reviewing is that, Casts and uh, creatives, directors, uh, lighting, uh, set designers, and so on, um, they're seeing our reviews in real time. So you've got to be aware of that, I think, as a reviewer. If you're reviewing a film, the film is done, you know, yeah. and, and whether the directors or the actors ever read the reviews is, is I think, open to question. Some clearly do, but, you know, I guess a lot of them are on to their next project or even the project after that so what mm-hmm. uh, as far as they're concerned but the actors and the directors and the and the creatives and we know this because they do come back to us on occasion you know they're they're reading reviews at say midday the day after a press night and they're back on stage at seven thirty yeah. that evening so you you've got an obligation to be fair to them and you've also got an obligation to understand that your words do matter and you know, I sometimes have to pinch myself a little bit when I get some lovely comments back, uh, as as you sometimes do, uh, from creatives saying saying, oh, you know, you really understood our piece, or you know, thank you so much for your positive review. And you know, I'm thinking of myself sitting at my desk here, just punching keys on a keyboard as fast as I can uh, to to get the the piece done. Um, and you know, I enjoy it and I think about it, but it. You know, I, I, I'm not uh, I'm not aware of that kind of weight until it's explained to me again that 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 it's not like the the old days of the notices in the New York Times could close a show on Broadway, but it does matter what uh, us reviewers say, and sometimes for shows in London uh, on the fringe, and there's a fantastic fringe in London. There's so much yeah. good work around, but there might only be three or four of us reviewers reviewing a show. So, you know, you're 25% of what's going to be in the public domain outside of, you know, sort of Twitter comments and stuff like that. So you've got an obligation to be fair and to put some thought into it and to produce a review that contributes to the production uh, from your particular perspective, that of the bridge between the show itself and the public at large. So, you know, I, although I write these reviews quickly and I, you know, I don't make notes during a, a, a play, I do think about it. I often have got the review pretty much straight in my head uh, on the on the way home, riding the motorbike between the traffic lights and worked out what I'm going to say and everything else. Yeah. And, you know, the, the worst the worst thing I would want in terms of feedback as a reviewer from a show is that you didn't care about it. Yeah. If someone reads the review and they've been in the show or a member of the uh, public are reading the review and they think, well, you didn't care about that. You were just complacent. You just said, this is good. This is not so good. And that's it. Then that would be the worst thing 
for me. I don't mind someone disagreeing with me or agreeing with me. What I don't want is someone to be ambivalent about my review. Yeah. Often you hear cricketers, you know, and they'll say, oh, I don't read the papers, you know, I don't like what they say and stuff like that. And, and you know, I think sometimes writers, and especially with blogging and the internet, it's sort of become a much more democratic thing, I think mainly for the better, uh, though perhaps in some ways also for the worse. All these players, you know, they're going to read your review and then next week they're going to play again. And the next week they're going to play a next the next test match or the next series and so on. And so it seems to me that, you know, the reviewer definitely has some obligation towards, you know, the performers. You know, whether it is in the competitive setting of a test match or whether it is, you know, in 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 a in a scripted setting of a play. You know. But but so then, then if you turn to sort of the other obligation of the reviewer, which is to the reader, then sort of sport brings in several things which sort of increasingly bother me. You know, one is that it seems to me that there seems to be a tacit agreement between uh, reviewers of the day's play or writers and their audience. There seems to be a tacit, in some cases, a tacit partisan agreement between them there's an expectation from the readers that the that the reviewer will you know, support india or england or write from an indian point of view or an english point of view these things didn't used to be the case as explicitly as they are now Is, are they i mean in the sense that you know there's a the the partisanship has begun to be commodified it seems to me is that is that is is that a fair reading, or would do you have see it do you see it differently? Uh, I see it slightly differently. I think um, I don't deny that there are, there are partisan. I mean, in football, football especially, this is far more advanced, admittedly, than it is in cricket. Right? I mean, the the big publications in Europe uh, basically cater to the supporters of the biggest clubs and. To, and they they commit more resources to writing about the big clubs than about the the middle clubs or the lower rank clubs and so on, right? Well, you're absolutely right. I, I don't deny that at all. But I think we we have to bear in mind is that um, these are commercial concerns. Yes. And so it's always been the case, and I'll, I'll give you an example in a in a moment. It's always been the case that commercial concerns like newspapers and television channels and so on are going to, they're going to, in the main, not solely, but in the main, they're going to aim to maximise their, their income. Yes. And, you know, as as part of that, they're going to look to where the the clicks are online and where the readership is uh, and the uh, and the sales are in, in print. And so you're always going to get that bias. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um when I was growing up in the in the 70s and into the uh, uh, early 80s, growing up in Liverpool, um, Liverpool Football Club were European champions in 1977 and again in 78, and they were the leading club in in 70s into the 80s, and then uh, Everton won the championship in in 85 and 87. What's now the Premier League, so mm-hmm. on. But if you were looking at the 
newspapers in the Northwest, the Northwest editions of the tabloid press, like the Daily Mirror and the Sun and so on, mm. they were Manchester-based. Their journalists, yeah. were, they were published in Manchester. The printing presses were in Manchester. <clears throat> their officers were in Manchester. Their journalists had Manchester connections. And so it was full of stuff about Manchester United, who at that point were a kind of fair to middling uh, top-ranked side. Yeah. And I remember sort of a, a light bulb moment going off for me, thinking, you know, wow, we got yet another interview with a Manchester United player in the Daily Mirror or something. And the reason was because it was journalists in pubs in Manchester talking to their contacts. So, yeah. and also, you know, Manchester United then as now has had the bigger supporter base. So you're always gonna you're always going to get that. And I think we can we can to some extent separate different layers of, of media. And so. You know, even the less commercially oriented press, you know, the, the Guardian has just turned around, uh, uh, I don't know how many years, at least 10 years of historic losses into yeah. turning a profit now. And they've had to make a lot of compromises and do quite a lot of things in order to achieve that goal. Yeah. Um, but they, they've always had a more comprehensive uh, view. But even they are, you know spend a lot of time on what my brother calls the Champions League. Well, they're a not-for-profit not, not enterprise. Well, they're, they're run by a trust, yes. Yeah. Um, but they still, you know, they have want to... break to, even. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the other, you know, other newspapers and, and so on. And, I, you know, I, I, I think I think you just you just kind of accept that. And it was always, it was always the case. I yeah. think what the, what the advent of online writing, it's done... It's done kind of two things, really. I think it's given a platform to the full-on kind of partisan, the kind of uh, fan sites, the I think yeah. the the kind of Reddit type things where it's fans of a particular, and it gets very tribal and so on. So they've had their kind of um, they've found a home, and and the other home you've had, and I would put my myself in in this uh, bracket as uh, as a writer, and there are others, some of whom. You know, I, I might put someone like George Dobell in there, uh, yeah. writing for for Crick Info, um, where the, I think there is much more freedom. I mean, I I don't get paid in the main. I get a little bit of money here and there for my writing, but you know, it's not my main source of income by a million miles. And if I didn't get any income from writing, you know, I literally wouldn't notice it because it's so so little. But you know, it's nice that it's there, but I don't really notice it. So I'm beholden to no one. So I write about what interests me. And my job is to make the reader or to invite the reader to be interested in the same things in which I write. Um, so I don't have any commercial imperative in any of my writing at all. And, yeah. you know, that's a great freedom. And, you know, I remember a um, bit of name dropping here, talking to Lawrence Booth and, and you know, him, him, him saying that this, this is a difference between the, the more blog oriented writer and the more journalism oriented writer is that the, the, the blogger coming from the word weblog, a log of your activities on the on the web, has got this yeah. kind of freedom. So if I think about online o online media, I mean, I would, if I were a player, um, or if I was reading a, uh, about cricket media or, or theatre media, I would, I would think of a, you know, an old-style wireless radio where you would get lots of white noise and you get... <laughs> And then you'd come yeah. across a station and it would come clear and you would hear them. And then and then you'd come across a station and you would hear them. I think if I were a player, I would think of of 
media and media outlets um, as a bit like one of those radio uh, stations, uh, one of those old school radios. There's a lot of white noise out there. There's a lot of yeah. stuff that's that's not very well written or is not particularly insightful or is partisan or whatever it might be and you can just screen that out as white noise and then every now and again you'll come across you know clear you'll come across a station and there'll be some of them to which you know you might have an affinity that you will have empathy with and you'll you'll want to read those writers and you want to stick with those stations or you'll want to hear those podcasts and there are others that you will disagree with and then you'll have to decide if you've got time and energy to 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 continue to read or to listen to, to those as well but um, I think players or or any practitioners who are being written about by critics or reviewers and there's a slight difference between those two I think but only slight um, to ignore them all maybe kind of you know a, a nice short circuit because you don't have to read stuff about you know how you're not worth your place because you've had one bad innings and all that kind of overreaction and immediacy but on the other hand i think you would be missing out on some perceptive observation because something that i think is very fundamental that we haven't talked about uh, so far and i don't think gets talked about enough in cricket and to some extent i don't think gets talked about enough in theater is the experience of watching cricket or sport and the experience of watching theater or film is very different to the experience of making it and i think we notice this when um when ex-players move across into into the media and they haven't really been watching cricket they haven't been sitting in the stands they haven't gone through the days that we've gone through and enjoyed some of them and enjoyed others less and even if they are watching the game you sometimes see them up on the balconies watching the game their thinking is different because they're either preparing for their own for their own contribution as a batsman or they're thinking about what they're going to be doing when they're going out into the field or they're reflecting on their performance within the game and how they could improve it and I think one of the things that's been lost from a lot of sports broadcasting and one of the things that in theatre reviewing makes a difference is that part of our job as the non-professionals, as the non-practitioners, is yeah. to bring back that experience of watching yeah. uh, a sport or watching a production um, play out in front of you. Some of this is very te- uh, is very what you might call hygiene factors. Lots of yeah. us reviewers get so annoyed when we cannot hear uh, the actors singing because the music is too loud. Mm. Over and over again, you get in theatres and we keep we, we put in reviews, and when we get a chance to talk to them, we say to them, just have the music director or the director sit at the back of the theatre yeah. in the the tech rehearsal and see if they can hear the words being sung over the music being played because if they can't turn the music down or turn the mics up but don't have us fighting to hear what's being sung because the music is too loud now i think that's a kind of hygiene factor of them not spending enough time watching productions because they're spending all their time creating them i understand 
but we feel that and we're obligated to say that to our audience of readers and likewise when it comes to to cricket for example and coaches do this to some extent in in cricket if you're if you're seeing as i was seeing all through the ashes that the likes of jason roy are not lining the ball up and they're going at it with hands rather than with feet then they're they're nicking off and they're hitting the ball in the air because their balance is wrong. We can see that because we're watching hours and hours and hours of this on a regular basis, whereas he's not watching it. And then when he's in the pavilion and he's reflecting on his performance, maybe he has some video. That's a very different experience to us who are writing about the action, saying saying that when Jason Roy came into bat, he got to 20 and then he was out because of this technical flaw now you might say well that's the coach's job and so on well if it is a coach's job why do so many flaws in batsmen and to a lesser extent bowlers bowling no balls for example why do they persist why do they keep coming i'm skeptical about whether they are being told it by their coaches or whether they're being told to play your natural game and if we go into a theater context are directors really telling actors um in certain scenes that you know you need to ease back on the emotion here that the message is going to be stronger if you say it more quietly not quite as loudly not quite as if you're in a soap opera on a television that you're in a theater capacity 150 they can hear you all around this uh, small auditorium so i i want to i do want to move move to sort of the, what i the last thing i had in mind which is yes. uh, your your work with the uh, commentary but first uh, I have to ask you this: uh, Do does a spectator have a right to be pleased at the end of a day's play, or is it part of sport to have you know unsatisfactory days sometimes? Well, I mean, sport is called unscripted theatre. One of the reasons we we like sport, or certainly. I mean, it's changed a little bit with these kind of you know reality TV style scripted uh, reality, and you know I would call you know the the WWE, the World Wrestling part of that kind of thing, um, and to some extent events that support sport like the draft and things like that we had in the hundred, and they have an American football and so on, are, are much more. There's more of a guarantee, if you like, but I think when it comes to the unscripted, the unscripted drama, the the reward we get is first and foremost the fact that the outcome is not determined, that we don't yeah. know. Norwich City will beat Manchester City three nil. There will be an umpiring error that nobody realised until two hours after the event that awarded an extra run to Ben Stokes, which got England into a super over, which led to a tie and a countback. We don't know any of that, but that's all yeah. part of the excitement and its human fallibility and its its people rising to the occasion and other people crumbling under the under the pressure. Um, we have that, and you know, and every now and again, you know, Usain Bolt runs that hundred meters in Beijing, and I remember watching it and thinking, did that just happen? And then they reviewed the race again, and it did happen. And then I went to bed and I woke up and I thought, did he really run it in nine five eight and so on? And those events are all stronger because we don't know if they're if they're coming. We we have yeah. no guarantees in sport, and I, it's my belief that that even 
even certainly in cricket and to some extent in other sports, even on the surface of some of the dullest days, <clears throat> the struggle, if the struggle is, is keenly fought, um, if at the end of 90 overs, a side have made 230 for two in a, in a, in a county championship game. Yeah. If that has been tight cricket the whole way through with quarter, neither asked, neither asked nor given. I mean, yeah. I, I like it. What I find less attractive and, you know, there's a test match going on now in uh, Ronshi, is it? Uh, yeah. And, you know, India are absolutely hammering and understrength, yeah. ill-prepared and and unsuited South African side. And, yeah. you know, one, you know, admires Rohit Sharma, this late bloom in his, his, uh, his Red Bull career. Fantastic. But I'm not sure I just want, I want to see a side winning by an innings and 200 runs over and yeah. over again. Yeah, no, I mean, the... South Africa, this series, have appeared to be sort of Kahiso Rabada and 10 other guys. You know? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, it, it's, when he's bowling, it's a different game. And when everybody, when everybody else is involved, it's a completely different game. Yeah, um, I, think we'll, I think we'll see a different South Africa when England play. You know, Philander's obviously better in his home conditions. I like Ngidi yeah. and so on. But, uh, but yeah, so it's a bit like that with, uh, with, with uh, I think, with any... With any sport that I'm watching, there is no right to be entertained, to be satisfied. There is the expectation that if you put in your own thinking, your own willingness to engage with what might at times be inverted commas challenging material, slow days in cricket or a a football match, which is uh, a midfield struggle rather than with lots of chances, that you'll get something from it. But every now and again, it's just a, a... Keystone Cops show and the passes yeah. go a bit awry and the there's there's wides bold there's poor shots played there's drop catches even that can be quite fun to be honest yeah. um, so you know um, you and the other day there was this game and you know I think one of the, Manchester City I think they were five nil up after eighteen minutes yeah and yeah. they'd had yeah. like six shots. And now six shots in eighteen minutes is eighteen minutes is a lot, but you know five goals in six shots is yeah. unusually efficient. You know it yeah, almost I... never happens, and that basically it's ended the game. But the the what I what I sort what I'm sort of trying to tease out is is the difference between being a spectator and being a customer. You know, and yeah. and there, there's sort of an there's sort of an element in a lot of. Uh, entertainment and in a lot of the ways in which sport is produced nowadays and the 100 and T- and the IPL and all are part of this is that they are sort of catering to some expectation of being a uh, they're catering to customers rather than spectators well, you know I, in- I remember reading a piece probably in the New Yorker it might have been somewhere else probably 10 or more years ago and it was charting the success of the NBA and it yeah. said that I think it was in the 80s or something the NBA was in danger of sliding to fourth in the big four American sports which yeah. are NFL which is number one uh, MLB baseball uh, National Hockey League and the NBA yeah. and they they took a, a decision that they were going to create stars and the star was going to be the uh, the star player who was going to drive this uh, way of putting the NBA back into 
its position in the mainstream, towards the top of the mainstream American sports, was Michael Jordan. So you've got Jordan 23 and the Air Jordans and appearing in movies and stuff like this. And I, I think this is one of the ways in which... And you see it in the marketing of the IPL and, and the 100 and, and other sports as well. Football less so, but you do see it a little bit. Is Well, you, you see it with Coley and Ben Stokes. Yeah, and... yeah. because what, you, what you're doing is you're saying, even if the game itself, yeah. are, in a kind of traditional sense, is a walkover or if it's a slow attritional struggle, hey, you've got your show because you've got a chance to see your hero. You've got a chance yeah. to see the superstar. You know, you're... you're you, you you've got the 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 name at the top of the bill uh, above the title in the theater or or or, or as a, as a film you know and and i think that a lot of sports looked at the nba there and realized in the emerging changing media landscape that they need stars to drive exactly what you say because there are times when the unscripted theater of sport is not going to deliver and therefore yeah. you have to have other things and the main other thing you can have is the glitter of star quality yeah, that's i say i hadn't thought of that the the sort of stardom is sort of a you know insurance policy almost yeah. you know i think it is and you know wherever virat goes you know yeah. People, people will come, and you'll always, you'll always have that. And I mean, to some extent, sport has always had that, but it's kind of emerged from the the people. Movies. So, so yeah, movies, movies have had the star system since at least you know the the kind of studios began for a hundred years almost, almost now. Right? Yeah, for a hundred years or or more. And in sport, you had stars like Muhammad Ali emerging yeah. and George Best emerging, but they emerged really as much by chance and by force of their own personalities. It wasn't quite the collaboration that we I see mean, they're now. They're sort of more. I mean, Ali and Best and you know Pele and, and these yeah. are these are sort of folk heroes, right? They're not yeah. really. They're not really productions. Yes, and I think that's that. The production is an interesting word because I think it is a partnership between the sport, its administrators, and the individuals themselves for them to become, as they are often said. You know, it's a it's an interesting way in which the language is developed, but not developed. They're called icons of the sport, and there is an iconography attached to them because they are the images that are inverted commas worshipped by the by the fans. So um, I think that's what's, that's what's different and that's what gets you out of that danger of, you know, three IPL games or in this country it would be 300 games, one walkover, one rained off and one, you know, 120 all-out plays, 95 all-out. I mean, I, just recently I, I was really struck by this. Uh, the Times of India, which is sort of an old establishment yeah. newspaper back in the day, and now it, they've, you know, they bought a tabloid, and you know, arguably they've become tabloidized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a familiar. But path. the other day they had a they had a news item, and this news item was essentially a picture of Mr. and Mrs. Kohli in a in a grocery store in New York City. Yeah. And that was it. Nothing happened in the grocery store. Yeah. Well, it was just. Well, they went to a store. That was the story. We had we had ten years of this with David Beckham, and we still get it. 
get it now. Well, it's it is an incredible thing, but the the reason they print it is because people will click on it and people will buy newspapers as a result. And you quite rightly uh, took us back to the the Hollywood, um, the star system of yeah. Hollywood. And you know, uh, I started off talking about my mother working in a cinema. She was a big fan of films, so in the 1950s she bought all those. Um, film magazines some of which yeah. you could in liverpool you could get them direct from america because of the ships coming in so yeah. you know she had photo play and all of these and marilyn monroe with the glamour shots and all of that touched up photo photography and rita hayworth and all of this mm-hmm. this kind of stuff and they were they were her idols so there's there's kind of nothing new in in this insatiable at- appetite that uh, the public has for its its stars and for its personalities and you know Virat knows that the game and knows it's going to be played that way and to some extent he profits from it there's some concern in this country now not uh, I think (coughs) unwarranted that um, Meghan Markle uh, the wife of Prince Harry she's the Duchess of is it Cambridge? No, the Cam- I, I can never work out what titles the royals have got. Anyway, she's Meghan Markle, and um, there's there's a lot of concern that she is not finding it easy to to deal with the kind of tabloid attention. And you know, some might say that's the Faustian deal. You know, you, yeah. you choose to marry a British royal, you choose to have the British press following you around, and they're certainly le- less uh, aggressive and intrusive than they were before. Uh, Diana in 1997 um, but I can understand why that's a tough gig to have and why being in that focus 24-7 <coughs> and I'm sure Coley and uh, Doni and, and their close family have it as, as well yeah. um, there are the rewards but I can understand why they want to turn the television off sometimes if you like or turn the cameras off sometimes and just go about their business this is this is where we are, and it seems, <coughs> having been around for as long as it has, it's something that's kind of deep seated in human psyche that we want to have our our icons, we want to yeah. to have our heroes, and we want to know about our heroes. And a significant number of people want to know that their heroes have feet of clay. So you know, what have they been doing? Where where have they been doing shady things? And what are they involved? The gossipy stuff. Um, it's not going to go away anytime soon. I want I want to sort of take you as a last part of this yes. conversation to your work with Gorilla Cricket because that is that is that is live but that is also uniquely collaborative whereas all your other reviewing and all of you know my other reviewing is a is an individual is a solitary enterprise. Right? Yes. I mean, how how do how do you feel about that? Well, it's interesting that you you set it in that context because um it is something that that we're very much aware of i've been doing um i think i started with test match so for more or less exactly 10 years ago i think the bangladesh tour for uh, england in 2009 was my first yeah. and uh and it is a, a collaborative venture um it's collaborative uh, both in terms of being on the screen or behind the mics where we have three commentators but it's also collaborative in terms of its production making sure that you arrive on time that we've got enough uh, people to be able to make it all happen doing the support work sometimes with podcasts or with um, 
with some of the marketing effort and writing support pieces and so on. So it is more collaborative. Um, as to how I feel about it, uh, I, I, I enjoy much of the collaborative uh, dimension to it. What surprises me and continues to surprise me is that I must have worked with easily a hundred, probably more than that, uh, fellow commentators at Guerrilla Cricket over the last 10 years, often at extremely antisocial times of the day. You know, an yeah. India test will start at 4 a.m. And so, you know, a Perth test starts at 3 a.m. Um, the overnight uh, Australia tests uh, start 11.30 p.m. our time. And so you're often tired, you're often done a day's work beforehand, sometimes you've got a day's work coming up. Um, but you, we, we all generally get on, um, occasionally, yeah. because you, you only attract people who are, are opinionated, because otherwise why would you have the ego or the, or the commitment enthusiasm to put your words out into the uh, into, onto the internet so you're going to get people who have strong opinions and sometimes those opinions vary but I think almost exclu almost entirely um, the love of the game and the uh, respect you have for, for each other comes through and at its best um, it really flies because you know senses of humour mesh interests mesh and you get a, a, a really freewheeling freewheeling product which is based on cricket but not solely concerned with cricket and you know i i'm very lucky to count many of the commentators amongst my my friends and yeah. we often in the green room such as it is the kitchen that we have uh there when we're off mic we're we're more often than not actually we're, we're talking about movies or we're talking about bloody brexit or whatever it might be <laughs> and um and we enjoy each other's company but it's a good job because it's kind yeah. of five o'clock in the morning we're all shivering a bit cold we're on our third cup of coffee in the last hour and we've yeah. still got a couple of hours of commentary to go so it's a good job that we do get on it must be a very different job sort of trying to be part of a collective mind isn't it um, it it is because it's more of a obviously it's more of a conversation. You have to listen and you have to react as well as as spontaneously um, create. Yeah. Uh, but that can be that can be some of the of the best fun that you have because yeah. you, you, the energy goes higher and higher as a, a result, and you make each other laugh, and you know you go off on on riffs and so on and uh, I remember in the days of Test Match uh, Sofa uh, Dan Norcross and I were commentating and it was one of those it was one of those matches I think where something like, I think it was A.B. de Villiers was on his way to hit an 11 sixes in the yeah. a 40 ball 100 and I think I was on ball by ball and Dan was doing the summarising and yeah. I think I was getting to say, oh, that's gone miles, it's up in the air, it's going towards extra, uh, deep mid-wicket and it's six more. And Dan was convulsing in laughter because I could summon zero enthusiasm to see yet another ball pitched on a length that AB was smacking over the, uh, yeah. over the fence. And the more deadpan I got, the more he was laughing and, and, and coming back to me, which made me even more deadpan. And so it yeah. became a kind of double act. And fortunately, A.B. de Villiers, our straight man in this uh, comedy routine, kept hitting the sixes. So I was able to go deeper and deeper. And Dan was able to go higher and higher. Now, you can't, 
you can't do that when you're you're writing a report or a final over or you're looking back at A. Peter Villiers' career because it was the two of us picking up a vibe and, and running with it. And when it's at its best, that's what uh, guerrilla cricket can do and that's what the collaborative process can do. It, it, takes, it takes two 40s and makes 100 out of them. Finally, do you need... Do you need to want to be a writer in order to be a writer or do you need to be interested in the theater or in movies or in cricket or in football to be a writer? You know, which is the necessary thing and which is the, you know, which is, is which is the chicken and which is the egg, just to put it very, very clumsily. Yeah, so I'll take you back to how I... I made a, a what you might call a proper start. I've been as a as a writer. Is I've been sending little quips into the over by over and getting sort of Rob Smythe or Lawrence would would just publish and Gary Naylor makes a point. La di da da di dum and they were they were the kind of throwaway quips you do when you're sitting watching the television and you turn to someone yeah. next to you, say yes, and he got a funny haircut or something like that. Um, but. I was working in a university in the media school and one of my colleagues said, do you want to, you know, you go to the theatre with your kids. Do you want to write a review for uh, the website that I'm editor of? And I was absolutely flattered and delighted to be asked. And so my first review was of uh, Pinocchio uh, at a theatre about a 10 minutes walk from where I am sitting now, where I used to take my kids and indeed they did theatre school there on a Saturday morning. And I, I wrote a review of uh, a kid's version of Pinocchio. There was about 40 of us in the audience on a Sunday afternoon. I absolutely loved it. What I realized then at the age of 45, 46 or whatever I was then is that I had found something that I think everybody needs. And p- perhaps I was quite late coming to it because I had found a creative outlet I'd always been surrounded by creative people and I've been interested, as I say, in in movies, in theatre, in reading books and all of that, and then talking about it. But I'd, I'd never been creative myself. I can't draw, I can't paint, I take the world's worst photographs, I've got no interest in, in making a movie or anything like that, but I, I love the company of people who do. But I had not found my creative outlet until... I started to write reviews and then subsequently or around the same time started to write uh, in longer formats than mere quips about uh, about cricket at 99. Point, uh, the Googly initially and then on to 99.94. And I think, coming back to your question, the chicken or the egg, is that I think everybody needs to find their creative outlet. And for some people that will be kind of do-it-yourself and, you know, wallpapering for others it will be writing their own secret diary for others still it may be knitting embroidery cooking is a, is a big one but gardening. I think everybody, <coughs> gardening yeah um mm-hmm. everyone needs to to start with a blank sheet of paper or a lawn or a, or a, a, a blank wall or whatever it might be and then do something which changes it and then they feel a sense of ownership or a sense of, of having made their mark. And I think 
I think everyone needs that. Sometimes it's it's their children because they see themselves in their in their children. These can be these can be everyday things. They can be things we 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 do even without knowing. But I knew I think once I started to write reviews, I knew, uh, and then write about cricket, that I knew then I would found this creative outlet. I found that that beautiful combination. I'd found what I wanted to say and a platform for saying it and it changed my life i mean i'm not gonna deny that it absolutely changed my life because instead of of spending so much time reading about stuff which i still do and i still enjoy but i started then to write my own stuff about it and if people read it great if they don't read it i still feel better you know my mental health for want of a better word is is much stronger but i just enjoy it and it's never a bind for me it's never a a struggle i never have a moment's block in fact you know what stops me writing faster is i I can't type very quickly if i could type quicker i would write quicker so i'm very lucky in that sense but i do think it's because i'd spent so many times, as, as all academics do, I'd written exam papers, I'd written curricula, I'd written rule books, I'd written endless minutes of meetings, God knows how many emails, 100 emails a day uh, I'd written. And I hated, well, I didn't hate all of it, but I, you know, that's writing for a purpose. As soon yeah. as I had the chance to write for myself, I just felt this relaxation, I felt this release, I felt this... Uh, this opening of a dam of of words that I could then write and subsequently say uh, to Guerrilla Cricket and now on podcasts. And, you know, my life is enriched because of it. So going back to your question, what do you need, chicken or egg? I think you need to find what is your creative outlet. And then when you've found that creative outlet, then pursue it. Don't apologize to anybody. Don't think I'm not good enough. Don't think this isn't for me. If it if it is what you want to do, even if you're the only person who reads it, you'll still get an enormous amount of satisfaction. But I also promise you something else. If you read it and you like it, I guarantee that someone else will like it and probably a hell of a lot of people will like it. So find your creative outlet, practice it, have the humility to understand that some things will work and some things won't work. Your voice will come, and then yeah. as your voice comes, so will the pleasure, and with the pleasure will come readers and will come um, other opportunities. So that would be that would be my answer to the chicken and egg. Wonderful. On that note, Gary, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you for listen, listening to my torrent of words. Yeah. Oh, hopefully, you know, it, it will leave readers uh, with some ideas of their own and some some questions of their own. Well, uh, I, which is really the point of this whole thing. You know? Well, if they if they do have, if I'm able to to offer any uh, advice or any views, if they contact me at Gary Naylor nine 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 on yeah. Twitter, I will endeavour to to respond. I can't promise to answer every question. I can promise to read them, and I can promise to. Uh, give of my best uh, with any advice that, that I'm able to to offer. I'd be delighted. Yes, I'll, I'll certainly add your Twitter. I usually do add the the guest's Twitter handle on or in the show notes, and I'll yeah. certainly do that. Well, I think this has been fun. Yes, Thank so you. do I. Thank, Thank you. you.